Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Hey, everyone. We have a very special guest today. It is Amy Reichert, an author I have known for years. Amy, I actually just happened to remember the first time that I met you. You know how your phone does those cute little, like, do you remember that day when? And then there was one of me in a foam cheese hat with you. Yes, I remember that. I think it was, I think it was actually like WISRA, which would be the Wisconsin Romance Writers of America. Well, I just remember it was wonderful. I also got a butter veggie burger and some squeaky cheese curds, which I enjoyed very much. Very important. I love how you remember exactly what you were eating. I feel like the way we bonded the first time we started interacting was over food. I have never been that author who knew that this is what I wanted to do since I was little. I came to this late in life. It wasn't until 2010 that I even started writing. So I was almost 35 at the time. But I've always told myself stories and I've always loved stories in any form and I can get my hands on them. So it just happened to be that perfect time in life. I heard about NaNoWriMo for the first time and this little light bulb went off and it was like, oh, I could write my ideas down. That'd be cool. And that's how it all started. The first idea was I wanted to write about a chef who would be a great romantic love interest for a chef, a restaurant critic. I'll set it in Milwaukee. We'll talk about a lot of food. And, you know, the rest is history. I like to share the story of how, for me, from the time I started writing to the time my first book was out was five years. And that whole time I was writing the book or revising the book. And even when I was querying agents, that took me 14 months from the time I started querying agents until I got my agent. And I like to share that because people hear those stories of, oh, I queried five agents and they all wanted to represent me. And then I had a book deal two weeks later. And I just think that's so atypical and it creates this unattainable expectation for new writers. So for me, it was 14 months and I would send out a few. I would get rejections. I would revise. I would share it with some friends and get feedback. Repeat process, repeat process. I probably did that five, six times. My book was so much better by the end of the process. At the end of the day, I just started querying too soon. But you don't know until you try. And then it took me another 10 months to get a book deal. We had submitted it everywhere and it just wasn't the right fit. And I ended up getting picked up by Kate Dresser, who at the time was at Gallery. And she had actually reached out to my agent because she'd read the book as a second reader while she was working one of the Harlequin imprints. And she's like, hey, do you have anything like that cake book? And my agent was like, funny enough, still available. And that was how I got my book deal. And then since then, I've just been really lucky that I'm able to keep publishing. And now it's my sixth book, which is Once Upon a December. Uh, Yeah. This is my first holiday romance, well, my first holiday book, and a little bit about it. It tells the story of Astra. She and her best friends go every year to the Milwaukee Christmas Market. It's the weekend she looks forward to every year. This year, they're visiting, and there's just this 
part that they don't remember ever having been to. It's this cute little alley. There's these great shops that sell toys and books and, of course, a bakery with very attractive men who sell Kringle because it's a romance. And, of course, we need attractive men. And one of the men looks really familiar to her, but she doesn't remember ever having met him. What her and her friends don't know is that they have been there before. And this is a magical Christmas market called the Yule Market. And part of the magic is when people from the outside visit, they forget that they've been there. So she's met him many times. He knows exactly who she is. And something different happens this year. And she doesn't forget when she leaves. And then she starts to remember. Amy, would you mind reading us the first page? Yes, I can do that. Once upon a December, a girl met a boy, but she didn't remember. In a place outside of time, every day was December. As a resident, Jack Clausen treasured all of the Christmas trimmings that came with living in the Yule Market. The sparkling lights, fresh-cut pine branches, crunchy snow, joyous music, and abundant holiday cheer. The festive alley contained several shops selling handmade goods like sweaters, toys, ornaments, and so much more. His family's bakery, Kringle All the Way, was one of the many shops run by the Yule Market residents, a tight-knit community that never stayed in one place for long. Too early in the day for customers, Jack's hands carried multiple white bags containing freshly baked Kringle slices he would deliver to his neighbors. The smell of cinnamon and almond wafting to his nose as he pulled open the door to a stitch in time, the knitwear store near the bakery. Tables and shelves were stacked with every possible item that could be created with knitting needles, from sweaters and blankets to hats and scarves to stuffed animals and flowers. That's a weird place to stop, but that's the end of the page. So, Amy, one thing that you do here that I think is really interesting, a lot of dual POV romances start from the female perspective. And a writer asked me yesterday, is that a rule or a trend? What do you think and why? Oh, that is fascinating. And it's true. We do tend to start with the female perspective. And I think part of the reason is the majority of readers of these types of books are women. So from a grabbing your reader and having them relate to your characters as quickly as possible, I can see why the default is often to have the female POV first. For me, I wanted to focus on setting the tone of the magic and the Christmas market. And to do that, it was more efficient for me to start with Jack because he's in the magical place. He's in the place where it's always Christmas every day. And I really wanted to establish that firmly. I don't think it's a hard and fast rule, but I do think there's a good reason why the majority of times we start with a female POV. So it's a relatability issue. So, yes, I think it's important that your readers really respond to your characters and connect to them as quickly as possible. And it makes sense why you'd want to introduce them to the female protagonist first. Well, I'm glad to see you're trying something else because for a very similar reason, a writer was thinking about that. And I was like, no, I really don't think that's a rule. I think, like you said, it's probably because most of the readers are female. So it might be easier to jump in. But you wrote someone so thoughtful and interesting. And of course, we want to see what's happening in this magical world that is adorably named with all of its cute stores. Thank you. Well, and for the longest time, my first chapter didn't exist. It was starting with Astra's point of view at the library. And it wasn't until the second round of developmental edits that I changed that. So it feels like the right choice for this book. I was thinking so much of the tone that it felt like you're moving into Christmas. I think Almost by having that male perspective, we kind of did feel like heading into the magical land and the place of positivity. And that's really interesting because we talk a lot about setting the tone right there from the beginning. And then you do set this tone. But then when we have the girls and they're excited to be there, the main character, the love interest, like we're in on the trick, right? Yes. So that's interesting. It's a cool hook. Can you tell us 
How does it differ when you're writing a book for a specific holiday? What was the experience like for you? It really wasn't a lot different than writing a normal book. I tend to write very short first drafts because I really want to make sure that my characters are set and my plot is set. And then I add in all the pretty window dressings and settings and nuances and language. So for me, a lot of the Christmassy stuff didn't come until later. It was just a different kind of window dressing than what I would normally put in. And that turned out to be a little bit easier for me because I could just focus on the characters and the storylines I wanted to outline and to get on the page. And then I cranked up my Christmas music and binged any Christmas movie I could find in the middle of the summer. I was going to ask if you wrote this during the holiday season somehow or if it was just totally off and you had to like special order candy canes to keep going. It was. I did have to dive deep and I did bring on a couple little Christmas lights and put them up. I have a little Christmas tree I could plug into my computer. So I did try and get the vibe, but it was not easy to write Christmas in July. I want to go back to what you said about drafting, because I don't think we've ever had anyone talk about this. I'm curious about your workout. So do you go for like 50,000 words of a plot and then pump it up by 20,000 words? Is that the breakdown? That's pretty close. My very first really disgusting draft is about 50 to 55 words. And I mean, this is situations where you'll get to the last chapter and I'll have like, this ends well. (laughs) These are sloppy drafts. You know, most of the chapters end with some sort of bracketed statement that says, put something poignant here. Oh, I love that, though. What a way to keep writing. Yeah, because you, I want to keep going. For me, that first draft is basically a glorified outline. And I want to get it all on the page. And sometimes I don't have the right words to make it sound pretty, but I have the concept. So I'll just, in brackets, put, which makes it easy for me to find in case I accidentally leave them in later. I can just search for brackets and find them. And then I know what to do in subsequent drafts. So that first draft is usually like fifty to 55,000 words. And then the next round, I'll probably add 10 to 15. And of course, that's taking out a lot and putting more in. And then usually by the time I'm, you know, through my last developmental edits, like another 20, and I'm up to about 75, 80,000 words. And that's where my books tend to be. I think it's, especially with this being a holiday book, I think it's just a good roadmap for any holiday. I know this is going to air in December, and I feel like there's so many perfectionists out there, and holiday books are about perfection, and writing is about perfection. But if you just go with flow and just enjoy the writing day, and it's no big deal and you can fix everything. You can't have the best holiday that way. And you can have the best book that way. (laughs) Yeah, you can't be like, sorry, it's above 40 degrees, no writing to dick. (laughs) True. And it does come to the point when I am drafting and I bring the computer everywhere. I've brought it to my son's baseball games because you have to get it done. But you can't focus on the perfection. But of course, there comes a point in the process where you do finally have to say, okay, now it has to be good enough. And I'd have to fill out those brackets. And that's always when I get really stressed out. <laughs> oh, no. Well, can you tell us some more placeholders you use? So is it stuff like, and then she hits them with a snowball, everybody dies. Obviously not that one. Then the trees lit up, magic ensues. Like, what else do yeah. you put in there as a placeholder that could perhaps inspire people to put those in and keep going? Through like a, an, a B or C plot line. I won't really know what I want to do. So I'll maybe brainstorm four or five ideas and just shove them in there. And then maybe as I'm writing, I'll decide, oh, I want it to be this one. So then I'll leave notes for myself that, okay, I've decided I want it to be this plot line. And so this is where I need to go change things. Really anything to keep the process moving. So then the next round, those notes will be waiting for me to come back for. Sometimes I'll have an idea for 
Coconut cake is a good example. I tried to use a lot of food imagery and food language. So if I couldn't think of something, I would put in, you know, try and make some metaphor with blah, blah, blah. So I'll try and do things like that. I use Scrivener when I'm writing, which I think is just an invaluable tool because then I can also put in pictures. So for instance, in the Yule Market at the opening, there's the big wrought iron arch and there's a clock. So I took photos and I had those kind of over in the notes section so that they were right there when I was trying to describe it and I could have that. It's also really handy if I have like a picture of a model or an actor. That's sort of my inspiration for a character. I can put that in there as a refresher of what they look like. I think we're all watching the book to film and the blow up of the holiday streaming market. I mean, it's a thing. It's a real thing. Do you see this as a movie and where where you think it could go? Of course, I see all my books. <laughs> I would love, I do think it could work as a movie. I think there's just something really magical about it. And this magical Christmas market, in my mind, it usually comes off of a wall or in between two buildings. And all of a sudden, one day it'll appear. And there it is. And when you're in it, you don't really think about the physics of this is in the middle of the <laughs> and why can't I see any buildings? And did they get permits for this? <laughs> There's no permits. It was kind of fun thinking about where would their water come from and where does their electricity come from? And I didn't answer. I don't think I answered all those questions, but those were just ideas that I was having. The magic is really interesting because this was the first time I really had to do a lot of world building. In the grand scheme of world building, it's not a lot. But I really did have to think of the rules and how things are different. And a lot of that is driven on how to keep my two main characters apart, because that's where it all comes from. And so you have to create those conflicts. So the fact that she can't remember that she's ever been there, the fact that people who live in the Yule Market, while they can go out while it's attached to a location, they can't really leave the way the Yule Market works is on December 1st, it opens up and it appears connected to a Christmas market somewhere in the world. Could be anywhere. And it's there until Christmas Eve at midnight when it then magically disconnects. Mm. The people in the Yule Market are then cut off from the rest of the world for a week. And then when it would be New Year's Day for the rest of the world, they jump back to December 1st and it's December 1st again. And they open up at a new location. I mean, that's a lot of tension. What's going to happen? <laughs> is how does this work? So if somebody isn't back into the Yule Market by the time midnight strikes, weird things can happen. So it's strongly discouraged that residents of the Yule Market leave. So that adds to the difficulty of people deciding to leave when they want to go join the outside. And people can come in, but once you're in, again, it's not like you can jump back and forth. And because time works differently there, it could be years before you're back in the same location. The hardest thing I've ever done, but I loved it. And I think it makes sense. It makes sense to me. Yeah, it makes sense to us yeah. listening. Well, I love how you describe it, seeing you describe it as weird things could happen if this thing happened. Now we know weird stuff is going to happen. But with magic, there's always something that can happen. And with love makes magic. Yeah. yeah. Not, you know, the power of love is important and doing things for love is relevant. And what I'm going to say about that. Can you talk about some of the food in the book? Yes. So the big food item is, of course, Kringle. Kringle is a Danish pastry. It's become really, really big in southeastern Wisconsin when the Danish immigrants came over. Originally, when they arrived, it was in a pretzel shape because they learned how to make this dessert from Austrian bakers who are big on pretzels. But that's probably more history than you needed to know. So when they brought it here, 
year and they were making it in the pretzel shape, they realized that the last part of the Kringle that people ate was where it was overlapping because there was less of the delicious filling. So they decided to just make it into a nice little oval shape. But it is a pastry that's designed for multiple people unless you're really hungry. Some people think of it as the tiny Danishes that are the single serve. It's a similar dough and then it's usually filled with like fruit or nuts and it's just so delicious. I love it so much and (laughs) I wanted to have an excuse to celebrate it in my book. So that's the primary one and there's all sorts of different flavors. There's cherry, there's almond, there's pecan, raspberry, apple. My favorite is cherry almond combined which is why I put it in the book. And then other delicious foods are of course typical of Christmas markets. If you've ever been to a Christmas market, there's lots of mulled wine, hot chocolate, spice nuts, and my absolute favorite, which is that gooey raclette cheese that they put underneath a heating element and then they scrape it off onto bread and then sometimes they put mustard and other things on it but i just really want the cheese on the bread it's so good oh my gosh i just thinking of this market i was like "Mm." oh good So what are the things that you've learned along the way that you wish you knew when you had started? That's a really hard question. I do feel like I'm constantly learning new things, but I kind of wish that I didn't know that it gets harder with each (laughs) sort of the opposite of what you're asking. You'd think that it would become easier with each book and some things become easier. Like I feel more confident in being able to tell when there's enough to a story to make a book. But there's also the added challenge that the more books you write, the harder it feels, at least for me, that I'm coming up with fresh ideas. Like, okay, I've already written a book with a chef and now I have a librarian character and now I have a Christmas. It's like I'm ticking off options for future books. I don't know how Stephen King and Nora Roberts do it. I don't know if they ever feel they're reusing ideas. So that always feels a little bit of a challenge. Like I always feel like I'm anticipating what readers are going to think, which almost makes it hard to just explore new paths. Like I self-censure myself, but I really shouldn't. I should be just exploring. So part of me kind of wants to go back to those early days of, oh, I can just try anything and I have no idea what people are going to think. And that's a little freeing. But to actually answer your question, I don't know. I wish I could tell myself that publishing is not a scary place. I mean, there's scary parts of it, but not the dealing with the editors and not the dealing with the agents and not reaching out to other writers. All of that is lovely. This is a wonderful community. And when I first started writing, I was so nervous to talk to agents. You were terrifying. What? I know. Oh, that, that, that's now. They did seem terrifying. Like, we've really worked hard making agents seem not terrifying. <laughs> I remember pitching an agent. It was a workshop in the Midwest. And my voice was trembling with fear. Like, this lovely woman was not going to do anything awful to me. I don't even remember who I pitched. But it was just really weird. And now I realize that's just not how it is. Everyone in the industry wants to see people succeed. They want to help you. They want to give good advice. You just have to be not insensitive about how you ask for it. They're kind of like holiday elves. They kind of are. They make magic. They're for the most part cheery. They're looking for the best toy. A lot of us are really short. But it's interesting though, because I I do think that we put agents on this huge pedestal and because they hold the power for our stories. But in the end, they're like the coolest people. They really are. The more you meet them in person, the more you talk to them, they're just people. They are. They're just people. Treat them like people. They're just people. Yeah. So that's, I think, a big one. I think that would have been helpful. Yeah. Wait, but then what's the scary part? Well, you're now that I know that you're normal humans, you're not scary. But that was the scary part of. uh, Yeah. The scary part is that you think that 
one tiny little mistake or typo in your query letter is going to get you banned from publishing forever. It is a weird little world when you're querying and you haven't really been edited at all. Now, you should try and make your query letter as clean as possible. But I just remember struggling. Every single word had to be perfect. And I was so worried to make some tiny faux pas that would get me blackballed forever. It was necessary, completely ridiculous, and all sorts of unneeded stress. But yes, I think that querying authors are quite the neurotic bunch. Indeed. Yeah, fair. It's a scary thing to do, but I promise we don't have the time to be like, someone used a comma wrong today. Yeah, that happened 400 times today. It's okay. <laughs> Yeah. So can you tell us some of your favorite holiday books by other writers? I, funny you should ask. Ha ha. I just obsessed with so many, but I have four that I'll specifically talk about today. The first one is A Very Merry Bromance by Lissa K. Adams. And for readers that are not familiar with Lissa's bromance series, I just love the premise so much. It is a group of men who have decided to make a book club where they read only romance books so that they can learn things so that they can woo the women that they love and truly care about so they can be better men to the women in their lives. And I love that premise. And this is the, I think, fourth in the series. And it follows Colton and Gretchen. They have a really steamy one night stand. And Gretchen ghosts him, which again, I love that she played with that trope, that idea. But Gretchen finds Colton as a country singer. And Gretchen has an opportunity to get a lot of money for a cause that she cares about. But the requisite is she needs to get Colton's help as this country music celebrity and he agrees to help her but she has to go on three dates with him so it is a play on the whole christmas carol instead of three ghosts it's three dates it is just a hoot i think Lisa does such great banter between her characters i love her stuff so funny laugh out loud funny kind of stuff great i read one of them i don't remember which one i think he was a baseball player or something and of course there's a moment where the women realize that there's a whole book club and they're like annotating romance novels there's one of them i think it's the second one they all go to a bookstore and the intention is to buy the romance books in person because normally they order them online but they're going to be men and they're going to go to the store and they're going to buy the romance and they're not going to be ashamed they're just delightful books and i really 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 enjoy them so that's my first book my second one is meet me under the mistletoe by jenny bayless this is a bit of a change in the sense that it's more heartfelt you might have some tears when you're reading this book it is set in england the main character her name is Nori. She's a used bookstore owner and she's invited to a, a former classmate's wedding that's being held at a castle. I mean, come on. Holiday wedding at a castle in England. Oh my god. I want to go. I know. Can we go? And it was a very, very posh private school. So all of her friends from school are very wealthy. She is not. When she gets there, she finds out that the head gardener for this castle is her child and enemy. And what used to be a fierce hatred has now grown into something a little bit more adult and full of chemistry. So that is a really charming and wonderful, full of English humor. One of the things that I've noted not in all the books that I've picked is they're all enemies to lovers. That's <laughs> funny. I love yeah. that. And to, to add to the Jenny Bayless, we're doing a 12 days of publishing on Instagram and that is one of our giveaways. Oh, that'll be a good one. And the cover is just beautiful. And then I have two more if we have time. The third is The Holiday Switch by Tiff Marcello. This actually came out last year, but I love it so much. It's a young adult set in a small town where the claim to fame is that they filmed a very famous holiday movie once upon a time. So that is sort of their big tourist draw. And they get a lot of people who come in during the holidays to go to the gift shops and go to the locations where the movie was filmed. And the main character, Lila, works at one of the gift shops. And she's really proud of working there, has been really involved 
involved. And then the boss's nephew, Teddy, shows up and is helping out to work. And he starts trying to do things in a different way. And she doesn't appreciate it. Enemies to lovers. Cute. I know. One day, their phones get swapped and they find out they both have some secrets and they start to help each other out and they learn more about each other. But it's got all of those wonderful holiday book tropes that you want. There's hot chocolate, there's ice skating, there's a blizzard. It's just utterly delightful and so charming. And it's a really fast read. I mean, these are all fast reads because that's what a holiday romance is. And then the last one I want to talk about is All I Want for Christmas by Maggie Knox. This is actually a writing duo of Karma Brown and Marissa Stapley. This is, again, another enemies to lovers set at a country music reality competition. And the two main characters, Sadie and Max, they are on stage singing duets during duet week. And their chemistry is so off the charts that the producer insists that they pretend that they are also dating off stage, But they hate each other. You have the dating trope. You have enemies to lovers. You get to be in Nashville. You get to go to the snow-covered mountains of Bam. It's just utterly delightful. Those are my fun. Those are my recommendations for your Christmas cozy reading. Can you talk a little bit about tropes and perhaps why authors choose them? Because you love to read enemies to lovers. Hopefully you did not yourself live enemies to lovers. But how do you think people choose them? What do you think the main ones are? Any trends you're seeing? Well, I do think enemies to lovers has really blown up in recent years. Ever since Sally Thorne's The Hating Game, I think people have really glommed onto it more than I think ever before. And I do think with the rise of TikTok, does feel like in the last two or three years, there's been a lot more vocalization about what tropes people like. Like I just started hearing the grumpy sunshine one, which I'd never really heard of before. Wait, what's the grumpy sunshine? Grumpy sunshine is when one character's grumpy and one is a sunshine person. I tend to gravitate towards the historical romance ones because those are always the ones that pop into my head, like the stuck in a cabin with one bed, soaking wet and need to get warm so you have to take off your clothes. The secret baby. There's just all these little things that can happen in romance. And I think why these are so important to the romance reading community is when people come to the genre, they want something that is familiar and they want it to be predictable because it gives them comfort. You're coming to these books, you know it's going to end well. There aren't going to be any horrible surprises at the end. So you can enjoy the characters and you can look forward to these anticipated moments because you pick up the book and you know it's going to be enemies to lovers. So you know that they're going to be fighting in the beginning and awful to one another, but you also know it's going to evolve so you can enjoy that ride. And I think a lot of people look at romance and they dismiss those tropes as sloppy writing and lazy writing when any genre, any book is going to have examples of that. But I think when there are so many examples of people who do it creatively and twist it and really make it interesting or even don't twist it, but they just do it really, really well. So that's my little speechify on tropes. Well, a lot of people say they would like a new twist on something familiar, which I think is really cool. So it's easy for people to make fun of romance, I guess, because, you know, real literature is a challenge and stressful, which is, you know, the opposite of what a lot of people are looking for right now because the world is a challenge and stressful. But I remember seeing a class at a conference once where women had three really big fuzzy dice and on each side it was, OK, this is the trope that you're going to use, the setting 
and I guess the love interest. And she'd roll them and people would write that. And some people would look at that and say, oh my goodness, how boring is this genre if it's just X number of combinations? And of course, there are more factors than that. But I also think it's really a testament to the fact that it's not always the plot itself, the tropes itself, the setting. It's how you do things. Just as, you know, romance writers aren't like, oh, I hate myself. I'm not the only romance writer. No, it's how you do it, which I think is so interesting. Yes. I used to have a quote up on my board and I don't anymore, so I have no idea who said it. But the idea was if I wrote about a counter worker at a McDonald's and you wrote about a counter worker at McDonald's, even if it was the same 10 minute shift, it would end up being completely different because of how we did it. And I find that that is the heart of what these tropes are about and these cliches are about. It's about how we do them. So you nailed it. When my grandmother died, I took seven bags of romance. She just loved them. They all made her feel good. You know, any single combination that you can do. Can you leave our listeners with three things that they could maybe play with if they're romance writers? Three combinations? Oh, like a love interest, a setting, and a... Okay. We didn't throw that on me at the end. <laughs> and we could even put comments on the post where we post this and people can share their inventions. That'd be so fun. Oh, that would be very fun. Ooh. All right. I always like childhood friends to lovers. That's another one I like. So that's very true. The love interest is an ice cream taster because mm -hmm. to do food. And the setting is a theme park in Florida. Well, Good that sounds very that. sweet. Pun not intended. <laughs> well, I had to be careful to like not give you ideas that I, yeah. Oh, you're right. Sorry. Perhaps, can you talk a little bit about giving really vivid descriptions? Because I know that's something that food writers are great at. I think for me, when I want to really bring a setting to life, be it a room, be it a beach, be it a forest, I go through the senses and I will write a couple sentences from each of my five senses and then won't keep them all in there because that would be overkill. But it lets you really play with the idea of what you want to bring out. And it really helps to explore the space. So that's where I start is always my senses as, you know, the point of view character. What would you be experiencing? And then I go, what kind of mood is that character in? Are they angry? Because I think that's going to change how how something looks dappled or maybe it looks spotted or stained. It's going to change the tone of the language that you're using. So I think that's another way to approach a scene like that and just bring a scene. So there's two things. Do you mean like if they're cranky, like this stupid couch, it hit me in the foot again. Darn it. Yes, and then, yeah. Exactly. Or, hey, this couch is super soft and plush and squishy. Yes, exactly like that. Meanwhile, same couch. Same couch. And it could totally change. You know, maybe it's a bright green one day and it's a rotting leaf colored the next. Or a lovely new leaf green on a beautiful day. Yes. So those are two things that when I'm trying to do a setting, those are tools I can pull on to help me bring something to life. And that I think is an important thing as writers. All right, I'm going to go back to a question you asked a long time ago, which was, what do I wish I knew earlier that I know now? And it is an understanding of all of the tools available to me as a writer. When I first started, it was all on instinct. And I just wrote by gut. And now that I've been studying writing and the craft of writing, which sounds so pretentious when you say it or when I say it, you start to realize there is a toolbox of things like writing with your senses and thinking about the point of view. And they're all very common sense, but they're tools that when you're stuck or when you want to try something new that you can pull out of your bag and use. So I wish I knew more about those when I had started. I pulled it back. 
I like that though. Amy, thank you so much for being here. It's always so lovely to talk with you. I had a wonderful time. Amy, where can we find you online? You can find me on my website, which is amyereichert.com. And then I have a newsletter you can sign up for. And with my newsletter, there are updates about me, but I also like to share some of the favorite things I've been watching and reading. And usually there's a recipe. So it's very fun. And you can always ask questions. And then the place to find me on social media is really Instagram. I don't go on Twitter anymore. And Facebook is hit or miss if I actually see the posts that people send to me. So aereichert at Instagram. Lovely. And if you would like to contribute your short flash fiction version, I guess up to a paragraph or so of the pieces that Amy chose for you. So that will be Childhood Friends, Ice Cream Taster, and an amusement park. Put those three together any way you like. It could be on Mars if you feel like it. I bet someday there will be amusement parks there too. Just head on over to manuscriptacademy.com slash podcast hyphen Amy hyphen Reichert. We will put that in the show notes. Amy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It was a delight. It was lovely. Great. Happy holidays, all. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to Academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with First Pages Podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.